Well, hello and good day, beautiful soul, marvelous podcast family, splendid human being. What a privilege and honor to be with you again. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you're doing fantastic. I'm sending you all of my well wishes, good vibes, energy, positive vibes, positive intents, and anything I can your way to encourage you and support you today. We've got an amazing two-part series coming up with Neville Raymond, and he is talking about, and he does a master presentation on why humanity must overcome the doomsday imprint in our collective psyche to achieve peace. This is an absolute masterclass. It is a really phenomenal frame of res- uh, reference or perspective on why it is as a as a people, we do what we do, which is quite nuts if you study it. Um, and so this is two parts. The first one is his presentation, and he goes into the history and the um, ideas of why he believes this and where it comes from. It's fantastic. And this is part one. And in part two, we open it up to a discussion. So in this epi- episode, we talk about uh, the greatest Greek philosopher you've never heard of, why we need to connect and gain clarity is just the beginning. Look at humanity's history of violence, rape, and injustice. Um, humanity's examples of rituals, customs of abuse, crimes against humanities, uh, traumas of the collective psyche. We talk about uh, catastrophic events of nature and what that did to us. We talk about toxic pedagogy, the danger of identifying with gods, war as channeling channeling the vengeance of gods, the dominant values of humanity, and so much more. This is Those are a fraction of the notes. And so I know you're going to love this episode. If you enjoy it and you get value, please share this podcast on Instagram. Tag me at Matt Belair. Share on Facebook or somewhere other than Facebook. Um, the censorship is real. If you want to stay connected, go to mattbelair.com. Sign up for the email list. So if you want the new stuff coming out, um, whether it's some of my research or podcasts, make sure that we connect directly because it is some craziness out there. You can also become a patron. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair, become a patron. That really helps. And thank you so much to all of my patrons. And for those of you guys who want to go a step further and you want to learn a step-by-step master system for overcoming self-sabotage, strengthening your connection with spirit and designing and living the life of your dreams, check out the absolutely phenomenal Soul Compass course that is free when you join the Academy. I just uploaded some new content in the Academy from... Uh, Chris Marhefka is in there. We have Jackie Woodside's course in there. We have Howard Falco in there. There's also guided meditations, brainwave entrainment, exclusive contests from guests, and so much stuff. And so if you want to join the Academy, check it out. And you can also use it as a Patreon. It's only 33 bucks a month. And if that's too much, just send me an email and I'll make you a link for whatever you can pay to go through that amazing course and get access to that awesome content. So there you have it. That's it. For those of you guys who want some one-on-one coaching, just just go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching. Fill out the coaching form. Let me know a little bit about you, your goals, your business, and uh, we will connect and see how I can support you and your dreams. Love hearing from you guys. I'm working with some amazing people right now. All really just inspire me because I know there's so many good people out there. And when we connect to our vocation, what we came here to do is always of service. It's always a 
of value and we are a cooperative species. And as always, the best thing that you can do to support the show is one kind act in the world, wherever you are, just do one kind act or even better, take the kindness challenge, do three kind acts a day, go out of your way to do it and do not tell anybody. And that's the absolute best way to support the show. So with that being said, let's get into this amazing episode. First, let's come to a state of peace and coherence. Wherever you are, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And just let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, fiber, and atom of your being with peace, courage, joy, compassion, connection, and ready to take on this phenomenal episode with Neville Raymond. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest was born in Calcutta, India as a part of an established community of Indian Jews. He relocated to Los Angeles as a teenager. With a degree in English from UCLA, he pursued graduate studies in the history of ideas and the history of religions. He has spent thousands of hours in the clinical trenches, developing the principles and practices of co-healing and laying the foundations of a reparenting movement through his trio of books. The Genesis of Genocide, The Reparenting Revolution, and The Reparenting Blueprint. Welcome to the show, Neville Raymond. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for that glowing introduction. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I, know it's, uh, I know it's a very short one. Um, I just became familiar with your work and uh, you know, I started diving in and, and I was like, I definitely need to get this guy on the show. Uh, he's making a lot of sense and your studies are so relevant to what is happening in the world right now. Uh-oh, so yes. um, I'd love for you to just uh, give the audience a little bit about your background and we'll dive into uh, some of the amazing ideas that you're sharing. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the main thing is I think it shaped me is that I was born in India and I think, uh, and I moved here when I was a teenager. And I think it's really important to kind of have a uh, a view of things that's outside of your culture. I'm sure, Matt, if I had been raised in this country from the time I was an infant, I would be looking at things a little bit differently. But it's really great to have that uh, duality of views, right? It allows you to um, to see things which otherwise you might miss. Rudyard Kipling had this great line. He said, what do they know of England who only England know? What do they know of England who only England know? What do they know of America who only America know? See, I think it's great to have that bicultural perspective. I think the children from that sort of union are, are you know, great. And I think the, the fact that you have that ability to detach yourself and see the field from outside the field, it's very important to really understanding everything. For me, it, it led me to become a passionate um, a seeker of the truth. And, and I'm, I was, as I said to you earlier, I'm like a dog with a bone. I will take that bone and I will get to the pit and the marrow of things because I want to know. I want to know. It's like that song. I, I want to know what love is because it, inevitably it takes you back to that, right? So the burning question for me was always this. Love is the beginning and the end of our existence, the alpha and omega. It's the core principle by which we organize our pro-social beings. There is no doubt about that, right? So then why has power and why has institutional violence been the organizing principle of society 
for thousands of years, right? This is the question of the ages. It, it really is. I mean, we do justice to our humanity by loving it unconditionally. But, I mean, why does our justice system that have more in common with a um, theology of, of, of hell and damnation than it does with affection and nurture? I mean, if you think about it, you know, what is our prison system but a kind of a hell, you know, and we damn people to it. We have instruments for damn, instruments of damnation in the form of uh, war. Um, so our need for love and, and instinctual, our, our, our instinct for living is, is so powerful. It's, it's rooted, if I may say that word, in our mammalian biology. We're mammals, right? It's rooted in our mammalian biology. So why then do we have this cultural obsession with, um, with the, this, this compulsive mania for death and destruction? You know, it just seems to me there's something that begs for an answer here. I mean, something that really needs to be, I mean, it took me 40 years to figure it out, okay? But it's been worth it because I think the answer is so persuasive and it's so compelling that, um, that uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's powerful enough to, to revolutionize the world. Well, yeah, so, please go on because, you know, I think we'll, before we were kind of getting all set up for the show, I said that I really wanted to have you on because we have a very similar interest in wondering why there are these seem to be evil systems or, or systems that are not conducive with life. They're not con- conducive with uh, community, with any, if you study religions as you have, you know, it's like we have this guideline for what ethics and morality are, but our right. systems at the top are right. not are not using that they're actually the the opposite and we're exactly. we're being manipulated in a lot of different ways and how are good people doing terrible things and yeah. also at times in mass numbers what causes that so exactly. uh, yeah yeah I'd love for you to dive deeper yeah i mean if people want there's an interview from 20 years ago on on which i did on the genesis of genocide which speaks exactly to this in terms of judeo christian morality people think that judeo christian morality was a bulwark a kind of a defense against Nazism. But what I show in my book, The Genesis, is that in fact, <laughs> Judeo-Christian morality was w- allowed it to happen. It actually allowed it to happen. So that, that's a whole other topic. So let me get down to, to, to this. Obviously, I'm not going to cover all the bases here, like I said, but if people want, they can go to the Reparenting Revolution or the Reparenting Blueprint. And as I said earlier to you as well, Matt, as the author, you know, I'm a little biased, but I, you know, I look at how I would have loved to read something like this when I was in college because it would have it would have given me a perspective on the world that I would not have spent so long trying to figure out, right? Now I have it, so it's great. I want everyone to have it as well, okay? So as I said, I don't set myself up as a last word on it. Uh, I'm opening the door here because this is, this is a door to a panorama, a vista, and they're going to be anthropologists and historians and psychologists who are going to march through this door, and they're going to do, you know, they're going to fine-tune everything I'm saying here today. They will put it, they will bring it all, you know, home to everybody. Um, so what is this epiphany, okay, that I'm talking about? Okay, uh, paradoxically, I'm going to start with a quote from 2,500 years ago by probably the greatest Greek philosopher you never heard of. His name is Alcmian, Alcmian of, of Croton. And he, he, he wrote the sentence, right? He said, men die because they cannot link together the beginning to the end. 
Another translation would be human beings perish because they're not able to join the beginning to their end. Okay, now what did he mean by that, right? Well, an obvious example would be, I mean, it's one of the most basic principles of psychology, right? We have an adult, you know, having dysfunctional relationships. What's the first place we go to? We go to the childhood, a dysfunctional family, right? Oh, well, let's say we have a, repeated of- a repeat offender with a uh, history of violence. Again, first place we go, a childhood rife with, 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 with violent abuse. It's necessary to connect the end with the beginning. It brings clarity, understanding, resolution. Um, you don't have to keep indulging in, in, in destructive or, 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 or self-destructive behavior. So, so the first thing is when you see some, somebody exhibiting signs of, of, of social deviance, or, or sociopathic behavior, you say, well, what's, what's the word that comes out of it? He needs therapy is what we say, right? And, and of course, what is therapy but a process of going back in time until you in- inevitably arrive at a, a soul-searing history of, of battery, of, of rape, abandonment, uh, molestation, rejection, all of those awful things that happen to us when we're the most helpless and the most dependent on love. Now, we do this as a matter of course with individuals, right? We do it with individuals. But I think the next step, what about our species as a whole, right? I mean, what about our species makes our past such a blood-drenched record of man's inhumanity to man? I mean, what about our history makes it seem like, I like this phrase, it seems like a cavalcade organized by the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? I mean, ever wondered what kind of a background of death and destruction would account for history as such an encyclopedic dossier of, 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 of crimes against humanity? And, and so let's take it one step at a time, okay? If we go back to the childhood of the human race, right? We can see, I mean, the evidence is all over the place. We can see that our ancestors did some extraordinarily cruel things, right? Today, today, if we see a child being terrible to animals as George W. Bush was by his own, by his own, you know, his own accounting, right? He, he, like he put firecrackers in, in frogs and he blew them up. And, and we don't shrug off this kind of behavior by saying, Oh, boys will be boys. You know, we no longer dismiss children who who, who light cats on fire as, as, you know, this is one of those things children do. No, we know that torturing animals can lead to torturing human beings. And notorious serial killers like the Boston Strangler and, and Jeffrey Dahmer tortured and killed animals before they went on to torture and kill human beings, right? In Bush's case, we kind of know he went from, you know, blowing up frogs to blowing up innocent men and women in a war that millions of people protested against in capital in capitals all over the world, right? Uh, so likewise, we know that the English, there was an Englishman, Charles Portal, his name was, and he was the head of Bomber Command in World War II. And he kept a detailed diary of how many rabbits and larks and starlings and, and pigeons he killed. And so when we, you know, in Shakespeare's phrase, you know, when we see wanton boys tearing the wings off flies, you know, or behaving like bullies to other children. We immediately look for answers, you know, and the answers we typically find point to a very troubled childhood, you know, a history of battery, neglect, 
and severe and extreme emotional abuse. Now, when we look at the childhood of the human race, we extrapolate something similar. We're confronted with acts of extreme cruelty, practices that are not just inherently criminal, but insanely criminal. Okay, we have grueling initiation rites, form of torture inflicted on adolescents. We have ordeals that involve stress positions way before the CIA invented this. Okay, and sensory deprivation and, sen and sensory uh, uh, food deprivation and, and sleep deprivation, you know, all these kinds of deprivations. And we have mut the mutilation of body parts. And then we have the ritualization of Jeffrey Dahmer type of types of uh, cannibalism. That's what we have. You know, more advanced cultures have have rites of human sacrifice. Uh, humans are bound on altars. Their throats are slit, or their hearts are ripped out of their chest cavities, and then their bodies are set on fire and burned. Sacrificial victims are drowned. They're buried or entombed in buildings. They're impaled. They're crucified, or they're disemboweled. Right nowadays, if we burn the human form, it's an effigy, right? Like at the Burning Man festival. But back in the day, you have old Celtic and 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 Druid customs of burning war captives and criminals who 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 were preferred victims of sacrifice in giant wicker baskets that were woven into human shape. So what could go on with this grisly catalog? I just want to give you a really brief thing, but because the point is the point is that this this is an incredible litany of depravity and sadism that's bound up with the cult of the sacred, so much so that we even have a historian whose name is Rene Girard, who wrote an entire book called Violence and the Sacred. That's how bound up with each other they are. That's how violence is inextricably bound up with the sacred. So from all this ritualized pathology, you think that someone would draw the logical conclusion, okay? Something awful must have happened uh, to make our ancestors do these horrible things. But hardly anyone ever did. You know, we have, a, we have passing illusions, like there was a, a Danish anthropologist by the name of Adolf Jensen who says, men must have been subjected to some particularly overwhelming experiences to have been led to such cruel practices in their lives right? It's a kind of a throwaway line, right? No one really bothered to expand on it or go into any depth with it. And we have a few visionaries like Emmanuel Velikovsky and Ignatius Donnelly in, in the late 19th century, who came up with sweeping accounts of catastrophes in biblical terms, right? There was even, even a philosopher in the Age of Enlightenment called, um, his name was Nicolas Antoine Boulanger. And he, he came up with this really haunting line. He said, terror survives from race to race. The child will dread in perpetuity what frightens his ancestors. But again, no one bothered to follow the trail of psychopathology from the microcosm to the macrocosm, from the trauma of the broken home to the, little, to the literally apocalyptic breakdown of our cosmic home, because that's what's happened. That is exactly what's happened, okay? So how bad was it? Well, okay, to, to, to just you know, give you an example, okay? Think of a global conflagration like World War, you know, World War I and World War II. You, know, you have bombs flying, you have houses exploding, you have cities that are incinerated. But if the earth was in chaos with all this stuff happening, the silver lining was that 
at least the heavens were stable, right? I mean, the sun rose on schedule, no matter who was being bombed, the sun rose on schedule, planets moved in their appointed orbits, right? Now imagine if the world collapsed and the laws of nature went haywire. Instead of a world Instead of a world war, you have an apocalyptic war of the worlds. It, it, it's not fire exploding through some mountain like Vesuvius. It's fiery rocks falling like mountains and pulverizing the earth. Instead of a few million deaths, you have the die-offs of entire species. Okay. Instead of bomb craters, you have craters miles wide, gaseous effluvia spewing everywhere. You have drastic changes in sea level. You have mountains crumbling. You have atmosphere poisoned with the cyanide from a comet. Um, you, you have the cutting off of sunlight for months. I mean, this is devastation on a global scale. Entire communities are wiped out. People combusted where they stood. And most died instantaneously or in the aftermath. And the few who survived were, and some survived, as you have to know, because we repopulated the earth, right? The few who survived were terrorized out of their wits. They had the daylights traumatized out of them. In the absence of sunlight, there was no food. So the survivors faced starvation. And their capacity for coping was just stretched to the breaking point, right? Um, there was no way. There was no way for them to turn. I mean, you know, now you have disasters. You have outpourings of support, and you have comfort coming your way. But there was no part of Earth that was unaffected by these catastrophes. No part that could be tapped for any sort of. Uh, uh, solace or consolation, let alone warehouses full of like food or, or blankets or clothing or first aid supplies. None of it, right? So what would happen under these calamitous conditions? Well, to get some idea of our ancestors' plight, I always like to refer it back to something we can all relate to. Uh, does anyone remember what happened to Uruguayan uh, Air Force Flight 571? This is the one where the plane was carrying a rugby team, right? And it crash landed on the frozen mountainside of the Andes. And it came to rest on a glacier. And there was nothing to eat. And the survivors learned from the news on the radio that the search for them had been called off. Right? So they were cut off. And at first, poor things, they tried eating the stuffing from the airplane seats. But there was no nutrition. And so with great reluctance, they turned to eating their teammates. Obviously, they didn't come to this decision lightly, right? I mean, they were violating one of mankind's greatest taboos. But it was either that or starve to death, right? So they chose cannibalism as the lesser of the two evils. Now, the fact that the Andean survivors practiced cannibalism, there's a valuable lesson there. Okay, because all bets are off in a catastrophic emergency. We resort to practices we would never dream of under more normal, settled circumstances. I call this a Mayday morality. You've all heard of Mayday, right? I mean, the, Mayday is the international distress call that, you know, is sent out when a ship is going down or an airplane is crashing, right? Um, in this case, Spaceship Earth had crashed. 
spaceship Earth had crashed. And the rituals of our, and the practices of our ancestors may strike us as unimaginably ghastly, but they were the outcome of a Mayday morality. So for the Andean, now the good thing about the Andean survivors is that their cannibalism was a temporary expedient, right? I mean, once they were rescued, they had no more need to resort to it, right? So they got, they, they got treatment for their injuries in, in hospitals. They, they met with grief counselors, right? And, and psychotherapists to deal with their trauma. And so, so predictably, they reverted to a normal diet as soon as they, you know, were taken out to the outside world. For our ancestors, there was no outside world. The catastrophe was a worldwide one. Even when conditions returned to normal and they could grow food again, they kept up the practices that ensured their survival in those dark, chaotic times. Because there were no grief counselors for them. There were no psychotherapists. There was no normal frame of reference to help them mourn and grieve for their momentous loss and release their pain. And, and all the trauma from that terrible time was locked up in the human system. It was the imprint, I call it the imprint of doomsday. It was like a doomsday imprint, which in fact never disappeared and became the blueprint of what we call religion. And that meant that doomsday rituals were codified. They were ossified. The word ossified means they were hardened. And then they were codified in, in, into various laws and customs and traditions. And they were passed on from generation to generation. And all the rituals that primitive man follows, he follows because his ancestors initiated them once upon a time. You know, when I was in college, I read Mercia. Eliade, his Cosmos and History and, and his other books. And it was all about how primitive man, tribal man, kept on following the customs that were initiated ab origine in the in the old time, in the beginning. This was this was the substance of all that primitive religion was. And these rituals were invariably violent because the original template was a hyper-violent shattering of our terrestrial order. So again, I want to bring it home. One way to understand this anthropological record is to think of those insulated or ingrown communities, right, that we see in horror movies, right? I mean, you know, the ones where, where someone, the motorists make a wrong turn, right, and they find themselves among flesh-eating freaks, right, who are cut off from civilization. In fact, there's actually a movie called Wrong Turn where six people find themselves trapped in the woods of West Virginia, right, where, where they're hunted down by, by, by cannibalistic mountain men who are grossly disfigured, right, from generations of inbreeding. Now, it sounds a little humorous to say it, but that is the story of our ancestors. Only in their case, they were disfigured, not so much in their bodies as in their souls, in their psyches, in their minds. The first survivors, and I like to call them Ur survivors because the word Ur means first. So the first survivors, the Ur survivors, never got the help they needed to get over their trauma, their Ur trauma, and get back to normal. There were no corrective mechanisms for them to get back on track. The myths speak of one or two 
uh, survivors who served as the progenitors of the human race. And they passed down these b- bizarre rituals. They were the ones that gave these bizarre rituals to the, the, the tribe, to future generations. It's as if they suffered from a post-traumatic stress syndrome and disorder. And I mean, in the wake of these cosmic catastrophes. And so they ritualize these symptoms in various life-threatening customs and attitudes. And memorialize them in perpetuity. That's what they did. And naturally, and you can go ahead and we come back to this now, one of the first coping mechanisms that they that they ritualized was cannibalism, right? Our, our ancestors literally made a sacrament of eating human flesh. They made a sacrament of it. And today, of course, civilization has outgrown the actual practice, except perhaps in the rite of Holy Communion, where worshipers are saved by eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Savior, right? An interesting footnote to that is that the Andean survivors salve their consciences. I mean, it was they were doing a horrible, horrible thing. And, and the way they salve their consciences was by telling themselves it was sort of a, a version of the Eucharist. It's like a Holy Communion, that they're... they're their brothers were giving them their flesh and their blood to save them. But aside from that, if we just leave aside cannibalism as an actual you know, practice, it becomes a catch-all metaphor for a wide variety of, of inhuman behaviors that involve preying on our kind, right? History, both ancient and modern, is a litany of abominations that conform more or less to cannibalistic patterns of behavior, right? Rituals of blood sacrifice, rites of initiation where adolescents pass through the belly of the monster. They, they pass through the belly of the beast. A bloodthirsty compulsion for war. Blood-sucking practices institutionalizes slavery and usury. Um, the traditional rationale for these monstrous acts it is that they're necessary to save society from a worse fate. And the thing about them is that they cry to be, they cry out to be explained against as a mayday morality that harks back to a time of catastrophic collapse. I mean, how else do you make sense? How do you make sense of these dire examples of a literally dog-eat-dog mentality, except against the background of an earth-shattering emergency, a universal crack-up involving the entire human race. Um, But of all the horrific traditions that can be traced back to a doomsday imprint, and so many can, and I can't go into all of them, but they're there. Even this relatively innocuous ones like, you know, our primitive ancestors, our ancestors would cover their bodies with this red dust and because there was this red dust in the wake of the comet. Anyway, um, you know, of all the horrific conditions from, from, from crucibles of initiation to, to manufactured crises that drain the lifeblood of the economy, as we see now, as we saw during the Great Depression, we see now. You know what the absolutely worst one is? the one with the most damaging life, long-term consequences, it's how, and it comes down to how man attempted to make sense 
of the extinction level events that devastated his planetary home. How did he make sense? This is the this is the issue. He, he didn't see it as an astrophysical uh, accident. He, he didn't know that it was just the Earth like crossing the path of a comet, say, in the course of its orbit around the sun, right? He saw it, and this is the thing that that is where it starts. And I really deal with it for, in the first book as well, The Reparenting Revolution. He saw it as a punishment inflicted upon him by angry gods. Operative words, punishment, angry. Human beings had behaved badly. Don't you know they were being wicked? They were being depraved and they were being delinquent. And so the gods were literally punishing us for our sins. This was the worst possible way in which our ancestors could have framed these cosmic calamities. Because you know why? It created a model for dealing with bad behavior that would haunt society to this day. I mean, it's even dubious that there would be bad behavior, except for this fact that I'm going to talk about right now. But it created a model for dealing with bad behavior that would haunt us to this day. And the first place that this would be manifested is in the relationship between parent and child. In fact, it would severely damage that relationship. It would damage it, and it would do so for thousands of years. For if a factually innocent species became the target of divine wrath, and is subject to all kinds of terrible punishments, then what kind of precedent does that set for human beings in relation to their factually innocent children? If it sets a, it sets a precedent for, for parents to punish their innocent children in the same way that their celestial parent in heaven, i.e. their heavenly father, had gone about punishing a factually innocent, the factually innocent children of men. Right? And, and, and so what did this do? What it did is this. It set in motion, because I've always wanted to know, you know, if people are good, how did the chain of child abuse start? This is how it started, because this interpretation set in motion the whole cycle of violence and abuse that even now goes from generation to generation, but much less, much less than before, though. It, it, it all began with the horrific forms of abuse that rained down on man from the heavens. Legends and myths are full of stories of the gods virtually annihilating mankind. And the geological record is full of, of evidence that celestial objects like comets or, or planetary thunderbolts smashed into the earth and laid waste to it. But the problem, and this is really important to get, the problem is not these celestial assaults per se, right? This is not the problem. It's with the few who survived them because they were left so traumatized by this ordeal that the only way they could come to terms with it was by personifying these cataclysmic forces as angry gods and believing that they were teaching man a lesson. Infernal fire and brimstone from heaven. This is not a random outcome of physical forces. It speaks of gods of wrath deliberately teaching an errant sinful species a lesson. And voila, you have the origin of toxic pedagogy. Toxic pedagogy is a concept that Alice Miller you know, wrote about in the 80s and, and described in terms of her books, uh, For Your Own Good, 
and, and hidden cruelty and child rearing. She made a whole story about how Hitler was a victim of toxic pedagogy, right? And toxic pedagogy is this grotesque way that we teach children how to behave properly is through a punitive campaign to beat them into submission. Now, the gods modeled this toxic pedagogy for man, and man turned around in turn and modeled it for his children. He unleashed thousands of years of violence and aggression against his own flesh and blood in the name of punishing them, in the name of disciplining them, in the name of teaching them a lesson. Now, so so this is where it started, right? Gods rain down this, these destructive blows on the human race, and they give rays to, to parents raining down this destructive blows on the young of the species. Now, this is the first and the foremost way in which the, the punitive wrath of gods is channeled from a cosmic arena into a domestic arena. And believe it or not, this is how the intergenerational cycle of abuse got rolling. Think about it, okay? We know that children, we know, and this is really important to understand this distinction because people invariably come up and tell me, well, not everyone who's abused will turn into, you know, an abusive person. And that's right. They won't. Okay. We know that when children are abused, they don't necessarily turn into abusers. If they find an advocate, if they find a witness to help them experientially process their pain and their shame and their outrage, they can reclaim the high ground and they don't have to grow up to take revenge on their own children. But if the abuse is relentless and there is no one to run interference for them, it becomes intolerable for them to remain stuck in the victim role. And so they survive. How they survive? They split off from their victim role and they learn to identify with their aggressor, with the very person who's abusing them. In other words, if there's some empathy and love to temper the ferocity of the abuse, victims don't have to turn into victimizers, right? But if the abuse is all that they know, then then something different happens. Then victims who have no hope of beating their abusers wind up joining them. It's like the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what happens there. Now, if these abusers grow up and confine their violence and aggression to their own offspring, this gives a new spin to the wheel of abuse. And traditionally, they've never been punished for this, okay? It's the age-old way. I mean, we all know, we've all heard of it, the age-old way of child rearing. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? But often, if the aggression and wrath from a history of abuse is not confined to the family and spills out, spills out outside the family circle, then what happens? Then it's unleashed against other adults who preferably or usually are smaller and weaker than oneself. And this is where society draws the line, right? So for centuries, it's been okay for parents to aggress against weak, helpless children. But if they start aggressing against other adults, albeit they might be small and weak too, they're branded criminals. And the full force of the law is brought down in their heads. And this is how we get what we call a criminal class, okay? Uh, this is how this criminal class comes into being. Even though they were once as innocent as their victims, right? When they grow up 
to be adults who prey on innocent people who are weaker and smaller than them, as they were once weaker and smaller than their abusers, then they become menaces to society, right? So how does society deal with this, with these criminals, so-called? This brings us to the second worst consequence of the doomsday imprint. Okay, we saw the first was that parents who identify with gods and punish children the same way that they were punished, right? The second momentous thing that happens is something very similar, but it's not the microcosm of the family, but rather the larger universal family of man. What happens is we have survivors of cosmic catastrophes, right? Who split off from their human nature and identify with gods. Now you're saying, well, what's different from what parents do? But listen to what I'm saying. They split off from their human nature and identify with gods, not merely in relation to children, but in relation to humanity as a whole. They imitate gods, they identify with gods, and they claim to have a special affinity to gods. And when they do this in an institutional setting, they're known as the ruling class. For the longest time, these rulers were worshipped as de facto gods who governed the affairs of men. They served as the proxies, as the surrogates, as the emissaries of, of, of gods on earth. And they were kings, they were princes, they were emperors who ruled over people by virtue of a divine right. And everyone was taught to obey the worldly authority of these kings and emperors because they supposedly came straight from God. So as the gods in heaven govern the children of men, their proxies on earth, these divine rulers, are raised up to govern the children of men too. But except it's outside the home, it's in the macrocosm of society. Their job though, is to judge and to punish the crimes of the children of men. That's their raison d'etre, their, their reason for being. And their main targets are supposedly those who were once victims of abuse, who grew up to run afoul of the law by aggressing against innocent people. So now these rulers take on the mantle of gods. They pass life and death judgments on society and, and they deploy weapons to terrorize society and control it. And they actually back up their power. And this is the kicker. They back up their power by adopting the weapons of the gods. They transform the fire and destruction that rain down from heaven into burning arrows and spears. They repackage the flaming stones that rain down from the sky into cannonballs and bombs. They literally weaponize the comets which wreaked mayhem and mass murder on the human race. Warfare thus becomes the primary function of kings. Have you ever wondered why warfare should be the primary function of kings? Why kings, why the word king gets always accompanied by warrior, warrior kings? War making became the sacred monopoly of the powers that be. And to make war now simply means channeling the vengeance of the gods. You know, it's not me who's doing this. Now it's the fiction of the state. But a few hundred years ago, 
It was the gods. Gods want God. The God wants you killed. God wants you basically put to death. God wants you to be hung on the gallows or put in prison. You know, the king is simply the instrument of God. And so what it, what happens is that to make war now means chant to channeling the, the vengeance of the gods, and, and, and it signifies leveraging the apocalyptic war of the worlds into world wars that annihilate millions of people. So in effect, just as parents made war on innocent children, these quasi-divine rulers that serve as our institutional guardians unleash weapons of mass destruction that recreate, as far as technologically possible from age to age, the assaults of the doomsday comets that came from outer space. In the end, the terrible fire and brimstone that fell from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is repurposed as the atom bomb that drops out of airplanes and destroys Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? In a way, it is the way of, of pseudo-divine princesses and politicians who still take their cue from God's of vengeance and wrath. I actually have a quote from Truman that says the powers from which the sun draws its, its energy are unleashed against the peoples of the Far East. This was right before he dropped the bomb. And this commentator made fun of him, said, said to get to get God to come in and, and you know, for the ultimatum, because the Japanese disobeys the ultimatum, it's like getting God to come in and tidy up your living room. It's ridiculous, you know, it, it's just it's just delusional thinking. But just as God's judged humanity for its sins by sentencing it to death, those who perpetuate the rule of gods on earth see fit to punish entire groups and nations by sentencing them to, to fiery forms of mass death. So here's a take-home message, okay? I'm going to kind of try and wrap this up here. Here's a take-home message. We accept war as a routine part of the human condition because we fail to realize something very basic. It originated in an apocalyptic breakdown of the cosmic condition. We allow authority figures to play God over us because we've forgotten that they're products of a time when the world went crazy and survivors were left too deranged to be centered in the ground of their own humanity. Far from the power structure being the gold standard of reality. And this is the thing that always gets me is that, you know, the power structure is the only real thing, you know, everything is this la-la land and fantasy. Love is utopian. This is what we're taught. And, and that's such a gross lie because the fact is that, that, that this power structure, which is upheld as the gold standard of reality, it's a relic of a time when reality, as we know it, collapsed. And those who made it out alive had to invent all kinds of phantom projections and fantastic explanations to help them cope. Right? I mean, I, I, I can't give you the, the, the momentousness of this shift when you see it. What the hey? What are we doing here? Right? We're, we're following, you know, projection. We're following the, these entities, the, these forces that we, that we couldn't deal with on their own, so we gave them this this aura of gods, and then they're actually punishing us. And so we're going to make punishment the central and the keystone of the social order. How is that? How are we doing this? Right. So, 
the dominant values of civilization, the worship of gods, right? The rule of humanity by schizophrenics masquerading as gods, because, you know, let's face it, you know, if somebody went to somebody, if somebody went around saying, I'm God today, they would be put in an institution. You know, you can't do that. But our entire ruling system, our entire ruling class believed they were gods for I don't know how long. And today their their descendants continue to play gods, even though we don't call them that. They are de facto, they assume a godlike control over all over our lives. You know, it's not democracy, it's a godlike control. So the dominant values of civilization, the worship of gods, the the rule of humanity by schizophrenics masquerading as gods, and our ideology of violence, right? Our confusion of justice with punishment, all this derives from a surreal, a completely surreal breakdown of the cosmic order. Judgment and punishment, violence and warfare, this is all the doomsday baggage from a catastrophic period in our past. It's the result of being accidentally crushed by random space debris. And all this stuff is so alien to our mammalian biology, our mammalian heritage. It does not represent who we are as human beings. So the, this lust for vengeance, you know, comes from the gods. You know, it's no one disputes that. You know, when Paul in, in the New Testament talks about, you know, kowtowing to secular authority, he makes no bones about it. It comes from God. You know, it's not who we are as human beings, okay? Because that's the corollary. If it comes from gods, it's not who we are as human beings. We are conceived with an act of lovemaking. And it's through the act of being cocooned in the womb of unconditional love that our bodies grow and our brains mature and, and, and our hearts expand. So our legacy is, uh, as human beings is one of warmth and tactility and, 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 and affection and empathy and compassion. And we seem to have forgotten the nature. Our nature is quintessentially human. So we need to re be reminded that love is the end all and be all of our existence. Like the Doobie Brothers saying, you know, without love, where would you be right now? Right? I mean, where indeed? We would probably be in a world like the one we have right now, racked with the corruption of power, the chicanery of propaganda, the, the cupidity of these money masters, and the carnage of violence. Our whole obsession with violence inclines us to think now, and this is, this is the other part of it that becomes really clear, right? Our our, you know, identification with violence all this year, all, all these centuries, our obsession with it makes us think that violence is the ultimate catalyst of change, right? I mean, look, French Revolution, Russian Revolution, American Revolution, all based on violence, right? But here's the kicker. We don't need violent upheavals to revolutionize the world. Once we have the epiphany that they already have. You know, the biggest one was when the, the, the cosmos went crazy. That was, that was in and of itself an upheaval of the most calamitous magnitude, right? We've already had that. And we're all basing everything off of it. So all we have to do is connect the beginning with the end to realize that our number one priority as a species is to free ourselves from a doomsday imprint to free ourselves from it. Because once we can 
once we connect our, our doomsday beginnings to the litany of potential disasters that loom, right, in, in, in these end times, we can finally complete the circle of life. We can understand how badly we've strayed from our human origins, how we've literally gone off the deep end by allowing our obsession to imitate the gods, propel us into depths of madness and depravity and insanity. You know, I mean, it's right there in Mercia Eliade's book, which she wrote like 60, 70 years ago, about how man imitates the gods, even though that imitation leads him into acts of depravity and criminality and insanity. I mean, it's admitted right there. You can see it, right? Um, and why should that be? When our real nature is to connect with each other in comity and cooperation, camaraderie and, 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 and compassion. I mean, our breakaway, our breakaway moment will come with a revolution in reparenting a grassroots movement that gifts every human being on this planet with his or her birthright of unconditional love. And as we release our collective trauma and we recover our sanity, we realign with our humanity. And this at last triggers a, 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 a seismic shift from a power-centered paradigm to a love-centered one. So my last words would be this, okay? And this sums up the whole dichotomy. The latest developments in anthropology, geology, and cosmology confirm that extraterrestrial violence is the foundation of civilization. You see it, okay, in, in the temples, in, in the rocks, in the myths, in the legends, it's there. But the latest developments in psychology and social science confirm something altogether different, and that is that the intrinsic love that is the foundation of our humanity, right? So the cosmology of violence made ours the killer civilization that it is, but the biology of love is what makes us the life-affirming species that we are. And I think that is the key to like changing the world. If we get that, we understand. We understand so much. I have... I'm so sorry, we have limitations here, but it would be the subject of another book and another book, I mean, another a podcast, another podcast after that, because it, it leads to all of this other stuff, right? Like the article I wrote, that the world doesn't need policing, it needs fairness and love, you know? I don't know if you saw that on, on Sayer's website. Um, but, you know, it all follows, everything follows once we have this this thing. It's like It's like... Um, was it Aristotle or, or Arch Archimedes who said, you know, give me that fulcrum, that, that fulcrum, that pusto, that, that little base that I can move the world. This is our base here, can move the world. Holy smokes. <laughs> that was amazing. You know, I, I knew this was going to be awesome. And I just sat back and I was like, I, I'm so glad that you went with a kind of a presentation format of what you wanted to share because that was brilliant and something that I have never really considered, at least not that deep of a level, you know, and the way when, when you bring, it, bring up the idea of an individual or a child facing trauma and how do you break that cycle. And I've heard the idea of like saying, okay, humanity's collective trauma, but when you trace it back like that, 
it just seems like the truth. It seems like, oh, of course. And back in the day when all that was happening, how would you be able to cope with your existence with, you know, with something so far beyond your scope and it, and it wipes out everyone you know and you're dealing with this insane trauma and this uh, grief and all of these human emotions that you'd have and fear and terror. What a really brilliant hypothesis. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Neville Raymond in part one. Part two, we we do a deeper dive. Um, I really enjoyed this episode. What an amazing perspective to have and to come to some sort of understanding of why we do the things we do as a civilization and how do we actually get to peace. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it everywhere you can. Share it on forums, share it on Facebook, share it on Instagram. Tag me at Matt Belair. You can tag Neville on Twitter as well. Um, that's the best way to get the show out there. There. You can become a patron, sign up for the email list because censorship is a real deal. And uh, what else? Uh, join the academy. If you go to mattbelair.com, you'll find the academy over there. So stay connected. Would love to hear from you. Anything you can do to support, share the show is uh, welcomed. If anybody wants to volunteer, you have some skills, you want to uh, put in some help, there's a lot going on here. I'm connected to a lot of people who want to do a lot of great things. And so if you got some skills you want to share, definitely open to that as well. And that's it. So thank you guys so much for listening sending you all of my love support encouragement energy well wishes your way and let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close it out wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and fill every cell muscle and fiber of your being with peace joy compassion and the wishes for humanity's evolution into peace kindness compassion and a new civilization thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode <laughs>